Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 7th, 2022. It's been a strange Independence Day week, a very sad one. The Highland Park mass shooting is, of course, still on many people's minds. The images are particularly shocking. The images of, of course, an idyllic Independence Day being completely destroyed by a psychotic gunman. We've done some shows this week on what to make of America on its 246th birthday. I did one with Ian Baruma, the Dutch historian, former editor of the New York Review of Books. We also did one with Jonathan Rausch, my old friend, who imagined a post-democratic America. Uh, he's the author, of course, of The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, a book critical of the fate of truth in the America of the 2020s. Both are scholars. We haven't talked much to politicians. Today, though, we are. We're talking to Jason Kander. Uh, many of you will be familiar with Jason because uh, Barack Obama once imagined him as the future of the Democratic Party. Uh, some of you will also be familiar with his book, Outside the Wire, his first book, uh, which is a book um, more pop perhaps uh, more optimistic and positive than the book that has just come out, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD. It's, I think, appropriately critical and dark for our age, but also in its own way hopeful. I'm, I'm thrilled and honored that Jason is joining us from a hotel room in Washington, D.C., normally lives in Kansas. Uh, Jason, welcome to Keenon. Uh, let's begin with a, with a broader question. We are, of course, going to talk about your book, but what do you make of the America of July 2022? If you were to sum it up, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Are you fearful? Um, you know, if I'm picking from those three, uh, I guess I'd go with fearful. Um, well, I'll give you some others. You can choose whatever words you want. Uh, I would say I'm pretty worried. Um, and I'm, I'm fearful as well. But, uh, but there's also reasons for optimism. I mean, Look, I'm a recovering politician, so I'm not in the business anymore of um, peddling optimism for optimism's sake. Although I think there's an argument to be made for optimism for optimism's sake, because what choice do you have, right? What's the alternative? But I'll tell you, um, when I look at America right now, what concerns me more than anything else, I mean, I, there's the obvious stuff, right? Uh, there's whether or not we're safe. There's guns. There's the democracy and the state of it. But when I think about the long term and what we're going to need to do to get out of where we are, what I worry about a lot is the question of what it means to be an American and what it is that actually unites all of us. Because I think it's getting harder and harder to pin down. And I think that when that gets harder to pin down, it gets a lot harder to solve our bigger problems. And this period we've ever had in our history uh, with you know, consecutive time of no mandatory service of any kind, when you combine that with, you know, everybody can choose their own reality uh, in their media, you get to a point where Americans are less likely to have empathy for one another, or less likely to have a curiosity about what the lives of other Americans that aren't exactly like theirs are, particularly those that don't share their political views. And that makes it harder and harder. But I remain a little bit optimistic because I see Generation Z and to some extent my generation, the millennial generation, seeking to use technology 
uh, and other plat and different platforms to learn more about people who are not like them and to to, uh, to get a greater degree of community with others. And that makes me feel hopeful. Jason, tell me a little bit about yourself. Your story is quite remarkable. Not everyone will have known it. You're, you're well known inside political circles. You describe yourself as a recovering politician, perhaps like alcoholics, you never quite recover. Um, yeah, that's right. Give me an overview of, uh, of, 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 of your life. How would you describe it to a stranger if you happen to sit next to them on an airplane? Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm from Kansas City. I'm fifth generation Kansas City, Missouri. And, uh, you know, I, I had a great upbringing, pretty privileged up, upbringing. Um, and my folks were uh, public servants. They were juvenile probation officers. And, and my dad was a cop. So, you know, we just kind of learned that when you have an opportunity to help people, you're supposed to. Uh, and then I went off to college uh, in Washington, D.C. at American University and then Georgetown for law school. And, uh, you know, I was a person who I thought about serving my country. I thought maybe I would do it one day in the military that I ever actually would have pulled the trigger. Uh, about a 50 50 chance, maybe. Um, but then 9-11 happened. It happened when I was going to school uh, here in D.C. And um, which is where I just you know happened to be today for the book tour. But um, it happened and. It, service changed in my mind from something I might do one day to something I was going to do and then figure out the rest of my life around it. So I joined the army, became a military intelligence officer, uh, volunteered to deploy to Afghanistan. And over there, I did anti-corruption and anti-espionage investigations, uh, which is to say it was my job to figure out which good guys, quote unquote, good guys in the government were actually, uh, you know, bad guys uh, and were infiltrating the government. And in order to do that, I had to go out and I had to meet with people uh, of questionable allegiances and put myself at great risk, um, my translator and myself, uh, at risk of being kidnapped or killed or both. Um, and then I, you know, but I was pretty convinced that like, it wasn't any big deal. I went to these meetings, nobody killed me. So I came home and I felt like that, that I didn't feel like I'd done any great thing. I came home and, uh, I entered politics. Um, and you know, the short version on the resume is I became a, a state legislator, then was elected secretary of state, first millennial in the history of America to be elected to a statewide office, ran for the U S Senate, came about that close to winning, um, in a, on a day when, uh, the democratic ticket in my state, I'm a Democrat, the democratic ticket in my state, uh, got pummeled, uh, Hillary Clinton lost my state by 19 points on the day that I lost the Senate race by 2.8. So everybody looked at me and was like, well, this guy seems to know how to get votes from from people who don't usually vote for us, maybe we should listen to him. And next thing I knew, I was a little bit of a political celebrity. Uh, and President Obama was saying pretty nice things about me and brought me in to see him. And we had an encouraging chat about the possibility of me running for president. So then I was pretty much doing that, um, getting ready to officially announce, but I was pretty much running for several months. But this whole time, ever since coming back from Afghanistan, I was suffering from undiagnosed, untreated, post-traumatic stress to Afghanistan. And I was denying it to myself and I was not telling anybody about it. Um, and it involved night terrors, um, all sorts of other symptoms, which I'm sure we'll get into. And, uh, and it finally just came to a head and I, I couldn't go any further. So I decided, well, I'm not going to run for president. I'm going to run for mayor of Kansas city. So I started doing that campaign was going great. I mean, you know, I'd gone from running for president to running for mayor. It's supposed to go well. Uh, and we were going to win. Um, but I got, I kept getting worse and I started to get worse faster. And then I, I was having uh, suicidal thoughts and that was scary for me. I have a, at that point I had a wife and a son um, and now we have an, a daughter as well, but you know, 
I didn't want to want to kill myself. Um, so I, I went to the VA uh, and I sought help and I decided to drop out of public life for a while and deal with it. And so I spent a few months doing that. And now uh, I get the opportunity to serve veterans every day. I'm still involved in politics. You know, I have a podcast, 54, uh, different things. I'm a, on the board of several political organizations, national political organizations. But my day-to-day -day job is I'm the president of national expansion at a place called Veterans Community Project. We uh, serve uh, homeless veterans and all veterans as well. We, we go after the suicide epidemic, but also the problem of veterans homelessness, and we're expanding nationally. Um, and then I wrote this book, and I came here to see you. And that's my entire life story. That was probably a lot longer than what you do on an airplane. But No, yeah. you did a good job. How does um, the new book, um, Invisible Storm, is it a kind of second volume of Outside the Wire? Are you trying to do different things with the two books? No, I would say, you know, they're completely independent of each other in the sense that Outside the Wire, look, Outside the Wire is a good book. It was a New York Times bestseller. I'm very proud of it. Um, but, you know, Outside the Wire is vignettes from the campaign trail. It's the book where if you like if you like politics and you like stories about politics, um, I really enjoy that book. And a lot of people did. Uh, this book is a memoir. And this book is, you know, it's a story that I don't think most people or anybody has heard. It's the story of what it's like to pursue the presidency while you are keeping a secret from yourself and the world. So, so uh, in, in a sense, it. Jason, um, there are two Jason Candors, the, the Jason of outside the wire, the chief, the cheerful, optimistic politician, and the Jason Candor of Invisible Storm, your memoir of, of politics and PS, uh, PTSD. And this is a Jason Candor that somehow seems to have coexisted over the last few years. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that's right on. Um, I refer to it in Invisible Storm as uh, wearing the Jason Candor suit. Um, and it's not that I was fake. It's that it's the story I was trying to tell myself. I, that, that I was at great effort and exhaustion, the, you know, the guy from Outside the Wire. And like, that's still there. I, I'm a... By nature, I'm an optimistic person. By nature, I'm, a, I think, a pretty good leader. I, I try to be somewhat inspiring to action, you know, and that kind of thing. Um, but the whole time, I was in a battle with my own mind, and and I was I was trying to outrun it. And that book, along with a lot of the things I was doing, that was me outrunning my trauma. And I got to a point where I, I it was faster than me, and I couldn't outrun it. And I decided to write Invisible Storm because when I made my announcement that I was going to step back from everything, um, you know, I pretty well set fire to my political career, uh, which was a decision I made. You know, I went off a ledge not knowing if what was off the ledge, right? I didn't know if I could get better, but I, but I heard from thousands and thousands of people about the difference it made for them when I, when I went public with the reason I was stepping back from everything, how it gave them license to, try to get better or people who had been to therapy, it, it made them feel seen and less stigmatized. And then once I went to therapy and I got better and I went to this phase of my life that I refer to as post-traumatic growth, I realized that I wanted to write about it because I wanted to write the book that I needed 14 years ago when I first got home from Afghanistan and that a lot of people still need. We're at a time in America where, you know, maybe you've got individual traumas, a bad divorce, car accident, maybe you went to war, whatever it is. But everybody's living through some kind of trauma right now. I mean, our, our whole country is. And I know that I learned a lot 
about dealing with trauma from my experience um, at the VA and from living my life now. And so this book is me sharing that with people. I think it's a, a remarkably timely book, Jason, a very honest book, probably a rather painful one in many ways for you to write. Thank you. Um, I wonder, though, whether we can extend, I, I don't want to turn you or your struggle or your life into a metaphor, but do you see what you've gone through, these yes, two yes. Jason Candors, one outward, cheerful, the other inward, dark, struggling? Is this a metaphor for America itself over the last 20, 25 years? Yeah, I think to some extent. And, and I think, you know, I, I think more than that, what it is, is it's, I think people can take from this, and I hope, I hope they will take from this, um, a lot of stuff that they can use to figure out how to process what's happening in the news. I mean, look, like, for instance, I came home from Afghanistan um, for many years, unable to sit in a restaurant with my back to the door, unable to sit anywhere with my back to the door. I've conquered that. I've gotten through that. But that, you don't have to have gone to Afghanistan to feel that way right now. I mean, look, if there's a parade in your town next right, weekend, exactly. you're going to have second thoughts about going. And Especially if you are, if you're, you're going to be kid, right? Someone in school. Yeah. Or, or a parent, you know? And so I, I think, you know, a lot of what I learned about how, you know, when it is appropriate to, you know, use those survival techniques, when it is appropriate to process them, how to deal with them, how to be able to turn them back off so that you can sleep. That stuff is in this memoir. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there, I think there's a lot of people who can use it. The truth is like, everybody's got trauma. We just don't refer to it that way in America. Like we're all going through stuff, whether it's from watching right. the news or in your life. And we have a tendency to try to rank trauma. And I did that for a long time. I tried to rank my trauma out of existence, but you know, you can look at it and say, you know, there was a shooting, but it was two towns over. So it's not supposed to bother me. You know what? If it is bothering you, it is bothering you. It doesn't really matter. Like people come up to me all the time and they say, you know, I've dealt with this, but I didn't go to war. And I'm always like, I don't know what that has to do. My brain doesn't know what yours experienced. Your brain doesn't know what mine experienced. What good does it do to compare the two? It just slows down your, your healing. Jason, we've done a lot of shows on this, what many people describe, and you might agree, as an epidemic of anxiety, of mental illness. Um, and as you suggest, had the planes not hit the towers and you might have pursued a career in business or academia or something, you still probably would have had this anxiety. What is it about the last 25 years, both for your generation and for your kids' generation, my kids' generation. What is it that makes us so anxious? Is it the internet? Is, is it what we eat? Is it how we exercise or don't exercise? Is it our politics? How would you explain it? It's a very odd thing. No one seems to be able to quite put their finger on the reason for it. You know, I think it's all of the above. I mean, somewhere, I don't remember where, but not too long ago that you know, we now are able to consume in a 60 second period on average, more new information than a person 100 years ago got in a week. Um, and, and that makes some sense to me. And when, when you're inundated with that much information, um, that's probably not a healthy mental diet. I mean, it's definitely not a healthy mental diet. I mean, I've, I've been doing for this book tour, I've, I've been doing a lot of cable news this week. And it's interesting, you know, I don't really watch cable news. I stay pretty informed. Um, I mean, I do a 
political podcast. I have to stay pretty informed. But I don't get my information through cable news. I'm not trying to bag on cable news, but just for me, that is not good for my mental health. And and it's been interesting how in order to go on on these shows, you know, I'm sitting in, and I, I I'm watching the show for the time. And I'm noticing like it causes a lot of anxiety for me. And I have so many friends who they don't just watch cable news. Like 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 there was a, a friend the other I did um yesterday I did Morning Joe, uh, but then I also did the eleventh hour. So I did, you know, like the six AM block and the eleven PM block on MSNBC. And a, a buddy of mine texted me after the second show and he was like, I caught both appearances today. You were great on Morning Joe, but you were even better on the eleventh hour. And my text back to him was, Hey man, I really appreciate that, but I think we should talk about your news diet. Because if you were watching MSNBC <laughs> for that entire period, like I, that's not good for you, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, but then I also think there's the reality of like, look, I think people were probably pretty anxious during the Civil War, you know, particularly those who who lived near the battles, right, or who had family who were fighting. You know, I think it's reasonable that our country going through an insurrection um, that that should cause I mean, not should it does. And it's, it's understandable that it causes anxiety because it, there's so much uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I think that's a big part of it too. Um, you talk about the civil war. We had Mark Bowden and Matt Teague on the show last week, talking about their book, the steel, the attempt to overthrow the 2020 election and the people who stopped it. Book also, of course, deals with January sixth. Um, you just talked about that. How much do you think this descent into political madness, whether it's this obsession with stealing elections, January sixth insurrection, the whole f- Trump phenomenon, how much is this a-, a consequence of our age of anxiety, and how much is it creating the anxiety? Of course, it's both. But where does this all start? I mean, Trump seems to benefit from his supporters' anxiety. The more anxious they are, the more they seem to embrace a guy like that. Yeah, that's true. But I suppose that you could you could actually say that about both sides to some extent, right? I mean, as somebody who's... Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't want to turn this into just bashing Trump. I think that's pointless. Well, look, I mean, I'll bash Trump till the cows come home. It's not That's not an issue for me. But but I, but I want to be clear that, like, when I think about how political fundraising strategy works, um, you know, when there's a call to action, for instance, for the left as well, it, it motivates people. But um, I, I would zoom out a little bit. It's not, you know, I mean, the question I get it, it's sort of like, is the anxiety causing this or is this causing the anxiety? But I'd zoom backwards. Um, you know, like if this were Google Maps, I'd go out further because I think that one of the things we don't talk often enough about is that none of what's happening is happening in a uniquely American vacuum. We as, you know, in America, what we tend to do, we figure everything that we're like, everything we're a part of, we must have invented, right? I mean, like, when people find out that like a dish came from another country, they're like, what? No, it's American. It's American food. You know, we're pretty parochial that way. Um, And so as a result, when we look at uh, the rise of this, you know, dangerous uh, far right in America, we figure we invented that. Um, most of us, so that you know, without really thinking about it. But the truth is, 
Trumpism is not, I mean, Trump was the guy who was standing there and figured it out at the time that this stuff is sweeping the world. And there's a, a battle across the world right now between authoritarianism and democracy. We're obviously seeing that play out in Ukraine, but we're seeing it play out in all sorts of other places around the world. And we are a battleground in a larger war. And so that's where I think this grows out. Of, it's been sweeping the country, sweeping the world. And I do comes from the anxiety around a changing world and interconnectedness that people don't know where they fit into. Countries don't know how they fit into it. And Trump came along and said, I have an answer to this. And some people grabbed onto it. Um, but if we want to defeat authoritarianism around the world, we have to defeat it here. We are but a major battleground in that battle. Jason, we've done a number of shows with ex-servicemen. We did one with Ruben Gallego. He's a, He's a great guy, a friend from, of mine. Uh, not a state senator, a, a House of Representatives senator from... Um, from Arizona, wonderful book. They called us lucky. He was very emotional on the show in talking about his service. We also did one with Phil Clay um, on rebuilding American citizenship in an age of endless invisible war. His book, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War is really important. I'm sure you know his work too. You mentioned the idea of service at the beginning of this book. How much is this central to your story and indeed to Invisible Storm? Is, is Invisible Storm a, a kind of a, a, a second chapter, perhaps, in a way, of, of your service to this country? Oh, it's absolutely how I see it. And uh, let me, while I'm here, let me give a shout out for anybody who hasn't read Ruben's book. Um, I, I yeah. haven't read Phil's, but um, Ruben, Ruben is a very good friend of mine. Um, and is, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us um, combat veterans in the public eye who have been open about the fact that we've gone to treatment for PTSD. Uh, and what I was struck part, with, part I, I, you should have a look at my interview with Ruben. He was, first, he was very emotional on the show. And secondly, he was pretty outspokenly critical of the military chain of command. He didn't, he didn't pull his punches. I'm, I'm not sure whether, I'm guessing you're probably in the same camp in terms of the irresponsibility of not just political, but also military leadership. I don't think Ruben's ever pulled a punch in his life. <laughs> so um, he's also like, if you ever get the chance to hang out with Ruben and check out a few good bars in Phoenix, I highly recommend it. Um, but, you know, uh, for me, to your question about is it a public service? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I've written a book here that is, <laughs> if I ever run for president, um, nobody's really gonna have to do much opposition research. It's all pretty well in this book. I did it for you. Um, you know, there's places where I don't come across that well. Um, you know, that's not necessarily, I, I mean, I, I, I'm sure you mean that, Jason, but my guess is if you change your mind about running for public office again in 20 years, the stuff you write about in Invisible Storm, it will be hard to use it against you. I think politicians in the future need to be more honest. So the fact that you say this stuff that, doesn't always reflect you as well as you, you'd like, isn't necessarily uh, a kiss of death in politics. No, I agree with that. Um, but I guess what I mean is, is like, uh, it'd be easier to just not to, right? And, and so um, I recognize that. And that, that's okay. Like, I might decide that I want to run again for something at some point. It's not where I am in my life at this moment. Um, but I made the decision that my wife and I made this decision together that I could help a lot of people with this story. 
and that that in and of itself is a public service. And if I can, if I can help people that way, um, then that is a public service worth doing, even if it potentially uh, costs me the opportunity to do something else. So that is how I see it. Absolutely. What about um, uh, 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 Phil Clay's argument that we need more public service? He certainly argues it's very clearly an uncertain ground. Are you on in his camp on that front? You think maybe not the military, but should all American kids graduating college, should they do some sort of public service, some sort of national service to understand others and contribute back to their community? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe that. Um, and I've been thinking lately that I want to get more involved in that cause because, um, you know, it's a lot easier to dehumanize the other side, regardless of which side you're on, when you don't know anybody who believes that stuff. You don't have anybody personally in your life who does. And that's pretty common in this country. And even if they, if it's not about what they believe, it's just about how they grew up or where they grew up. And that didn't used to be the case, you know? I mean... This is the longest consecutive period in American history without some form of mandatory service. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it should. Uh, it would be that you're military, but I deal as a country if we had a better sense of what the heck it means to be an American. And right now we don't. I mean, it's hard to define. Right. It's like, what do all Americans share in common? It's like one in three of us are going to watch the Super Bowl no matter who's in it. And everybody's got a pretty strong view one way or the other on Taylor Swift. Um, after that, it's pretty hard to find something truly unifying to everyone. Um, and, and, you know, like in Israel, where men and women both serve, they have compulsory service. The first question in almost every job interview is, what'd you do in the service? Um, it's important that we have things in common so that we can have a common national identity. Because without that, it's very hard to have a starting ground to accomplish anything and find any sort of agreement. Jason, do you see yourself as, as recovered? What advice would you give people watching this for whom they've perhaps been through the same things, they're suffering from some sort of mental illness? Is there some prescriptive stuff in Invisible Storm? Should people go to therapists? Should they be wary of medication? What, what's your advice? Or is it too hard given that you never know anyone's particular condition? Well, I, I try not, I'm not a clinician. So what I don't do is I don't get super specific. You know, I tell people what worked for me. Um, but I also am really clear that like, hey, look, the point here is that post-traumatic growth or a, a getting to a place where you can be mentally healthy and feel good, it doesn't mean you're going to be cured. You're not going to be cured. It's an injury like any other injury, but you can manage it. You can keep it from disrupting your life. What I want people to understand is that is achievable and it is worth continuing to pursue, even if it takes a few different methods to try. And and so I think that's the key to the book. Look, when I was going through all those years of untreated, undiagnosed post-traumatic stress, uh, I felt like PTSD was a terminal diagnosis and I didn't want to get it. Right. Because that's all I knew. I mean, how it's portrayed. The, I mean, most of the portrayals particularly in fiction portrayals of PTSD are their PTSD porn, their voyeurism, right? They're, they're usually a combat vet, but not always, but you know, it's a person who is abusing their spouse and abusing drugs and robbing a bank and maybe all at once. But the truth is, is that there's a ton of us out here who have been to treatment, 
gotten through to the other side, achieved post-traumatic growth, and can do what we want with our life. And we just manage, we manage the PTSD. It, we, we get a hold of it instead of it having a hold of us. Um, I want people to know that because I think more people would pursue either treatment or, or whatever other option to get better if they understood that that really is a thing that you really can. Big part of why it took me so long is because I literally just didn't know that it was a thing that you could go through and come out the other side better off. Do you think you could go into a war, fight in a war like Afghanistan or Iraq um, and not get PTSD? Yeah, I mean, it happens. You know, I don't think it happens as often as we seem to act like it does. Um, but it happens like, and we don't really know why some people do, some people don't. I mean, there've been studies where there've been two people who have been at the exact same incident, seen the exact same thing. One of them had PTSD, one of them didn't. Sometimes they were at the same place, saw the same thing, but somebody saw it from a different vantage point and that was traumatic for them. It's very hard to know. But, um, uh, I did read a book once where somebody said, they said that they concluded that if you could go to war and come back exactly the same you should probably see somebody because there might be something wrong with you. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and that, that always appealed. That made a lot of sense. Jason, you're from Kansas, the heart of America, uh, the sort of symbol of America. I had Thomas Frank on the show a couple of years ago, the author of What's the Matter with Kansas. There's an endless debate, particularly amongst progressives like Frank, about why states like Kansas are conservative. You learn how to talk to rural Americans, Americans not from New York or San Francisco or Washington, D.C. I know you're a recovering politician, but as I suggested earlier, you're probably like an alcoholic. You're, there'll always be a politician in you somewhere. Uh, I mean, you're very articulate. What, what lessons do you think you can offer uh, progressives from Missouri and Kansas and Nebraska all these rural states about how to talk to rural Americans. We did a show a couple of weeks ago with a young state senator from Maine um, uh, who, who, who has a, a new book out arguing that Democrats, big D, need to learn how to talk to rural Americans. Does she have a point? Is What, what do you know about this? Uh, a lot. And yeah, so I mean, I, I was born in Kansas, grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City on the Kansas side. And then you know, moved to Missouri where my family's always been from, which is to say I moved like four miles. Um, and uh, yeah, look, um, and to your point about being a recovering politician, I, I say it kind of as a joke, like it's very possible I'll run for something at some point again in my life, um, but I'm still in politics, right? Like I'm still on the board of Giffords and Let America Vote. And I still have a, a political podcast that's pretty popular, Majority 54. I still consider myself to be in politics. Uh, I just, I'm not running for anything. So I think about this stuff a lot is my point. And, um, and I'll tell you what I've learned uh, is that the debate that the Democratic Party is constantly having within itself stems from asking the wrong question. And that debate is more to the left, should we be closer to the center? How do we get these voters from the South and the Midwest who used to be with us to come back to us? And they're asking the wrong question. Um, and they're, and because it's not about how liberal you are or how not liberal you are. Like that don't matter to people. I mean, at the end of the day, the average swing voter, the average independent or persuadable Republican voter living in Cameron, Missouri, they don't 
like sit down and know the difference between Joe Manchin's policies and you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's policies. They they're two Democrats. They don't they don't have time to know the difference. They don't have the interest in it. Politics is not their hobby. And so, what persuades them is if you can make the case as to how what we believe in as progressives is going to make a difference in their life. And that's where the disconnect happens with so much of our leadership coming from the coast. It's not this so-called coastal elitism, and it's not a matter of them being too liberal. It's a matter of the most important, where I'm from, can all be boiled down to one major concern. And that is that we are all worried that our kids are not going to have enough opportunity where we live for them to raise their kids here. And that we're going to have to decide whether to move, if we even have the funds to be able to move, to go be with our grandkids. We just want to keep our families together. Everybody wants their family to be happy, healthy, safe, and nearby. And as Democrats, we're pretty good at talking about the first three, particularly healthy and safe. We've we gotten very good at that. But we whiff on nearby. And so when the leadership of the party is from the places that our kids go to for opportunity, there's no reason why they would see that. You don't have to change the policies. You just got to speak to the fact that our policies are far more likely to make it so that your kid can have opportunity without having to leave and that they can make their home where you raised them. And if we can make that case, we're going to win over a lot more people. Does the case also need to be made uh, by younger people? It seems to be a little bit of a gerontocracy amongst progressives. Biden, of course, Pelosi, Feinstein. Uh, You're a relatively young person who has chosen not to be in politics. How are we going to get more young, energetic people like Jason Kandor into politics, not just the Democrats, but perhaps also the Republicans, too. You know, I actually think I would challenge the premise of that a little bit, because when you think about it, I mean, yes, um, you know, President Biden is older and that kind of thing. But I mean, you know, the vice president of the United States is a is a young black woman, you know, um, one of the most influential figures on the left is AOC. Um, and then on the right, you know, Mitch McConnell pretty old. Donald Trump, pretty old. Ron Young. Um, so how do you get more people involved? The answer to that, unfortunately, is things have to get done one way or the other. And probably you are seeing a little more engagement by younger politicians on the right right now because they've seen more stuff get done that they're interested in, right? But there are a lot more young politicians on the left because there are a lot more young progressives than there are young conservatives. Um, Right now, there are a lot of people who might have chosen politics as their path to making an impact in the world uh, 15 years ago, or, you know, when Obama was first coming on the scene, who now, you know, that same person, if they had been that age then, they would have chosen that. But that same person now, maybe that very talented person is going to Silicon Valley, or maybe they're going to the nonprofit world. They still want to make an impact, but they're looking at it and going, that's not the path to which I can do it. I mean, look at me, like... Look, honestly, I have made a greater impact on the world in the last four years between what I've done about mental health, what I've done at Veteran International Expansion, and, you know, we haven't had a chance to talk about it, but what I've done just in the last 10 months getting involved in the Afghan evacuation efforts, I've made a larger impact doing those things than I ever did in public office. So it's not to say that I won't ever pursue public office again, but I still feel like I'm in public service. I just feel like right now there's less friction between where I am and getting things done in the path that I'm in. And I think a lot of other people are making that, that same decision. So how do we get there? We have to step up and make a system where, where stuff gets done. So 
you know, I guess if I had to pick one thing to start with, if we were to get rid of the filibuster tomorrow and get some really important stuff done, I think you would see a lot of young people go, okay, this might be worth my time. Well, Jason, I've got um, the title of your third book, if you choose to write it, Getting It Done. Uh, your new book, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PSD, is a very important, very emotional, very personal reflection on life as a soldier uh, and life after the army. Uh, and congratulations on that book. Um, you're a man who clearly gets stuff down, whether it's as a writer, a politician, an activist. Uh, I assume you do a bit of reading of your own as well. Are there any other books you're reading uh, that really influenced the, you that you would... Um, suggest for our viewers? Sure. I'll tell you the two most recent books that I've read that I've really liked. Um, you know, one is a newer book and one has been around a while. Uh, I, I just read uh, Judd Apatow's second book, uh, Sicker in the Head. Um, and uh, Judd's a friend of mine, but the book is just, but independent of that, the book is great. I mean, um, for anybody who's not familiar, Judd Apatow is a producer and director who's made a lot of movies you've loved, like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and, uh, you know, uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall and that kind of stuff. And um, his book is, it's interviews that were done during the pandemic, him and a lot of notable people, but a lot of what they talk about is mental health. And, um, you know, it's like interesting to listen, to read a conversation between David Letterman or Chris Rock about mental health. So that book is great. I would, I would really recommend it. I also like my book, all his proceeds go to charity. Um, and then uh, the other one that I loved is, is, uh, well, I'll give you three, actually. I apologize. I'm breaking your rule. Um, but, you know, because another friend of mine recently wrote a book, a guy named Mike Schur, another TV and movie writer, uh, he wrote a book called How to Be Perfect, which is a distillation of like ancient philosophy updated to today. And it's really, sure. it's delightful and hilarious. And also you learn a lot. And then the last is, uh, again, another friend of mine, but just a, a great book that I actually read while I was writing my book. And I think it in many ways influenced how I wrote it, which um, is a book called The Other West Moore. Um, which has been around for like 14 years, but my friend Westmore wrote it, and the it's a it's a memoir, um, and Wes is a is a fellow com combat veteran, army guy, um, but Wes you know grew up in Baltimore, and you know grew up in a different. Uh, he's he's a, he was a young black man in Baltimore whose father died very early, so he didn't have a, a father in the picture. His mom did her, her best, and he ends up um, as a, a road scholar. Uh, at Oxford, and he, and, and he has a very successful, uh, he ends up very successful by the time he's in his late 20s. But while he's at Oxford, he reads an article in the paper back home about another guy by the name of Wes Moore, who grew up in the same town as him, and was his age, who was in a very similar situation, who ended up, uh, by the time Wes read the article, on death row um, for murder. And then Wes, when he went home, started visiting the other Westmore and they became friends and they established a, a real friendship. And so the memoir is it's two stories happening at the same time laid out between the two Westmores and how their paths differed, even though they started in very similar places and what the intervening factors were. And really, even though, you know, Wes is running for governor of Maryland right now. And, and so obviously his life went in a very, the point of it is the difference and the moments, the sliding door moments as to where we could end up, we're really not that far apart from each other. And uh, and I found the book really compelling in that regard. And so I would highly recommend Wes's book, even though it's been around for a while. And most people watching this may have read it because it's been very popular. 